Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 95th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. We're back with the winners from 2022. We are unfortunately still in the past. Mm -hmm. We are recording this before we can't get out, before the Oscars air. Though at the end of this episode, there will be a little addendum where we are live from the future (laughs) and we will talk about whether or not we got it right and and whether or not the Oscars got it right, which is the real real issue. question. But in the meantime, we're just going to give our thoughts about these nominees, and we have these five winners that are the holdovers from last week. Yes. So as always, in our more than five nominees years, we do a multi-part episode. We do a little bracket where we set seeds by Rotten Tomato score, pit the top seed against the bottom seed, losers last episode, winners this episode. What are we talking about this episode? Well, our winners from last time are our one seed, the Banshees of Inishirin, our nine seed, Elvis, our three seed, Everything Everywhere All at Once, our four seed, All Quiet on the Western Front, and our five seed, The Fablemans. All right. We treat this one like a normal episode, so we'll go back through and say, will you be mad if it wins, I guess? Ooh, (laughs) how exciting. (laughs) So the Banshees of Inishirin, will you be mad if it wins? No. How about you? I'm going to say yes, but it's more about how I'm thinking about this year, I guess, then. Yes. Okay. Will you be mad if Elvis wins? Yes. Yes. Okay. Will you be mad if everything, everywhere, all at once wins? No. Me neither. Will you be mad if All Quiet on the Western Front wins? Yes. I'm going to say no. Okay. And then will you be mad if the Fablemans wins? Yes. And I'll say no. Okay. I think we went with opposite strategies this year. Yes. I know exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> no, I, I really like a number of these movies. I'm just kind of, yeah. I'm in the bag. I'm in the bag for everything ever all at once. I feel that. I think that's totally reasonable. So we should start, though, with our double no, which is yep. Elvis. Indeed. Oh, boy, Elvis. What a movie. There's just, it's so much movie. I'll give the briefest rundown because it's a biopic. You guys know how biopics work. It's about Elvis, obviously, but it's structured to be from the perspective of Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's longtime manager and a pretty nefarious figure. A lot of people end up blaming him for Elvis's death. And just it's kind of bookended with Colonel Tom Parker, who Tom Hanks plays, talking about how people say I'm this bad guy and that I ruined Elvis's life, but I didn't. I loved him and I helped him and blah, blah, blah. And then you see Elvis's life. Colonel Tom Parker discovering him, him, you know, getting big, taking America by storm, getting into some trouble and getting shipped overseas to join the army. He goes to Germany for a while. His mom dies. He comes back. He's fallen in love with a girl over there. They get married. He continues to be very successful. He goes on to have a big movie career. He ends up coming back with like a return concert later on. Colonel Tom gets him into a Vegas casino to have a long residency there. He gets eventually addicted to drugs, as all famous musicians in these biopics do. Yep. And it breaks up his marriage. And then he ends up 
dying pretty young in his 40s of a heart attack. And then it ends with Colonel Tom Parker being like, see, I didn't do anything wrong. (laughs) And that's kind of the structure of the movie. Yes. We'll talk about everything, but what impressions of Elvis? I mean, okay, to start with. I'm not particularly a fan of Elvis. I've never seen any of his movies. I've obviously heard some of his music, but I've never gone out of my way to listen to an Elvis song. I'm more of a little Richard Gurley myself. So like, I don't know that I really care about him. So this movie had a little bit of a hurdle of like, okay, yeah, make me care about this dude. I will also say, I don't know that I can say that Boz Lerman's sort of maximalist filmmaking style is objectively bad, but I think I can say it is objectively not for me. I've seen four Boz Lerman films at this point. So, uh, you know, a, a healthy sampling. A I don't know amount. how many films he's made. I don't like any of them. I you think, don't like Moulin Rouge? No, okay. I never liked Moulin Rouge. I've seen, so I've seen that, Romeo plus Juliet and The Great Gatsby. And to be fair mm-hmm. to The Great Gatsby, I think that novel is unadaptable, but that's I like agree. a whole separate issue. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, so it's just, it's not to my taste. There's a particular scene in this movie where they are overlaying the Doja Cat song that got produced with this with someone else who's singing in the scene and then all the road noise. And I was like, this is cacophonous and unpleasant. And then, you know, it has all the biopic problems. Mm -hmm. I found that Elvis would stand up to the colonel and then not stand up to the colonel and then stand up to the colonel and then not stand up to the colonel in ways that weren't like consistent or that he was growing. It just sort of depended on the scene. It's not really building in a narrative way. Yeah. It's just sort of listing things that happened, which right. is your classic biopic problem. And then also sometimes characters just appear. Like at one point, this guy Jerry shows up and all of a sudden he's real tight with Elvis and helping Elvis try to fight off the colonel. And I kept being like, who is Jerry? Where did he come <laughs> from? Who is he? Yeah. So, you know, between the filmmaking not being for me and the biopic not being for me, and then the yeah. ending was so funny. It was... It was very much the ending of King Kong, because at the end, the colonel is like, it wasn't the drugs or me. It was the love of the fans. And it's like, it wasn't the planes that shot him or me, the director. It was beauty it was that beauty killed, the killed the beast. I had the and, exact same thought with the end of this And you're like, movie. I'm pretty sure this is wrong again. I think it was <laughs> the drugs first. You second. And also you. And then beauty never. Well, the drugs <laughs> came from him. I mean, they're the they're the direct cause, obviously, but... Well, the heart attack is the direct cause. Sure. So you're saying the heart attack is the planes. Yes. Well, the heart attack is the bullets. <laughs> Maybe the drugs are the boat that brings him to New York City. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> this is a great metaphor. <laughs> Colonel Tom Parker is the director. Colonel Tom Parker. It's all, it's all coming together. Yeah. Okay. It's not for me. Fair enough. So I will give you my broad takes on it. Baz Luhrmann, maximalist is the perfect word for him. You start watching this movie and it could not be more clearly a Baz Luhrmann movie. There's like so much all the time. Every thought that he ever had ended up on screen. (laughs) It's like absolutely wild. All of the stuff. Text kept appearing on screen and it was all in different fonts. Like there was just, it's so, so much going on. The vibe is at a 12 immediately so much is happening i haven't seen that many baz Luhrmann movies i was an an enjoyer of moulin rouge back in the day i haven't seen it in quite some time i think Mm -hmm. i like the musical numbers i i'm sure i've seen romeo plus juliet but i don't remember it so i'm no great expert in baz Luhrmann. i have no 
particular love or hate for him. It absolutely falls into all of the tropes you expect for a biopic about a musician. Everything that happens to him is sort of exactly what you expect to happen to him. I don't know why every famous musician has the exact same life story, but it seems that they do. (laughs) It's the only way to become a big musician. Austin Butler is great. Tom Hanks is a lot, but I do love him and he's giving it his all. He is. The reason I voted for this to come through over Top Gun, I think is mostly not the end end of the movie because the end with Colonel Tom Parker, you're like, what are you talking about? It wasn't your fault. (laughs) But there are particular scenes towards the end that I really liked. There's a scene when his ex-wife confronts him. They have this scene in the back of a car where she's trying to convince him to go to rehab and he can't break away from this life that he has going on, even though he's clearly really broken up about it. That scene made me cry. I liked that a lot. There were just were some emotional beats that really worked for me. So even mm-hmm. though I'm watching it, I'm like, this is fucking insane. Like, this movie is crazy. It's all over the place. The fact that I was at least, you know, my heart was stirred sure. by some stuff that happened. I was like, All right, I got to give it that because my heart wasn't stirred by Top Gun. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Honestly, fair enough. I found it interesting. Mm-hmm. There's stuff early on when he's first building his career and he's taking the nation by storm and, you know, everyone's freaking out about his performances. And then there starts to be this backlash to it. And he's various times when he's supposed to perform on TV, they're telling him he can't, you know, gyrate his hips if he's going to yeah. be on TV. <laughs> it's against the rules. I felt like it was interesting that that kept skirting up against the real issue, which is like the backlash against Elvis is not that he shakes his hips, but that he plays black music, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the issue with Elvis and what they people felt like was going to corrupt the white teens of America. And they sort of butt up the scenes about the hips against him going to visit his friends in Beale Street. And he's like hanging out with B.B. King and stuff and like it's there but not text which i thought was kind of interesting i do think the racial politics of this movie are interesting you know there's a narrative that elvis is in today's terms he's culturally appropriating black culture and i think you know boz is aware of that he's trying to deal with it it's not like it's not present in the movie i just was intrigued by like the ways in which it was present. No, I agree with you. I agree yeah. with you. And it's, yeah, yeah. It, it just is interesting how they try to handle it. And I mean, they make interesting statements. So like, I think B.B. King says to him point blank in the scene where they see little Richard play. He says to Elvis, if you record Tutti Frutti, you'll make a lot more money that, than kid ever will. Yes. They're laying it out. Well, and I also wrote down, there's a part where Colonel Tom Parker is threatening Elvis that he can't do this thing because they're going to put him in jail. And B.B. King's like, they're not going to put you in jail because you're, you're a, famous a famous white guy white and everyone's making a lot of money off of you. And he says, they might put me in jail for walking across the street. You're a famous white boy. They're not going to put you in jail. Too many people are making too much money off you to put you in jail. Yeah. So it's there. It's text. <laughs> That's interesting. But then I feel like it kind of goes off the rails. The decision they make to superimpose Elvis in his films on a jet ski being splashed with water over the King assassination and race riots is like, I don't know. Is that good? I don't know because it's unclear to me what that means. (laughs) Like it's not. (laughs) This is the issue with it is it's there, but it's not all clear. Boz is trying his best, but I'm just, I'm not sure it's working. I don't know if I would put those images together. Me personally. Mm-hmm. There is a piece of set design I have to talk about in this movie. Yeah? I, I was losing my mind. 
So they get to this part where he's doing this Christmas special. And one of the push and pulls is Colonel Parker always wants him to be like cleaner, more family friendly. Yep. And so this is a comeback for Elvis, right? This is after he's been away in the army. He's come back. And they're going to do this Christmas special and he just wants him to sing Christmas standards. But Mm -hmm. Elvis has hired these two like hip, cool, young guys to produce something cool and hip and young. And so they're kind of doing that behind Colonel Parker's back. And while they're making that, RFK gets assassinated. And that's really a moment where the two cool hip young guys are like, Elvis, you got to say something. You got to make a statement. And Colonel Parker's like, no, 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 no. We don't get into that. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the studio that they are filming this, there are a series of posters on the wall. Did you notice these posters? I don't think so. Kirk and Spock. And then there is a different poster in between. And then there is a hurrah. And every single shot is framed so that the middle poster is blacked out. You can't see it. It's either like in between a window pane or someone's head in the way. So in the background of all of these scenes, you see Kirk and Spock and hurrah. And I'm like, this is part of his narrative about Elvis being an ally. He's using Star Trek to be like, this is the world we could be living in, a world of racial unity. And I'm just like staring at Kirk and Spock and hurrah. And there's no reason in the hallway for them to be separated by some random black and white photo of something completely different except to frame them in the shot and i was losing my mind yeah absolutely i did notice it now that you've mentioned them i noticed (laughs) the star trek stuff happening and i did find it interesting i mean it plays in a way where you're like i guess they're just shooting on the you know set where they filmed star trek or something it's the way they're making it but it is very intentionally there and you're like yeah this <laughs> is a comment is. about race relations <laughs> it definitely is fascinating there was a lot going on in this movie yes but i did find that i liked some of it okay Listen, guys, it's it's a biopic. It's very much a Baz Luhrmann film. If either mm-hmm. of those things appeal to you, or if you, I mean, if you like Elvis. If you like Elvis, too, yeah. Go yeah. for it. Yeah. So we've got our yes nose, the Banshees of Inishirin, All Quiet on the Western Front, and the Fablemans. Want to just mm-hmm. go in that order? Sure. Cool. Okay. The Banshees of Inishirin mm-hmm. is a movie about a group of people they live on an island off the coast of ireland in the early 1920s which is during the irish civil war colin farrell's character he has a friend colm and every day 2 p.m he goes over to colm's house and he comes and gets him and they go to the pub together and they have a pint and one day he comes and colm won't come out and so he goes back to the pub and he gets his pint and then he's like maybe i should maybe i should go back and and see what's going on with him, right? And the bartender's like, yeah, yeah, you should, because they're best friends. Mm-hmm. And so he goes back to his house, and then Parrick sees Colm leaving towards the pub. And so then he goes to the pub, and he's like, what's going on, man? Why'd you not answer your door? And Colm is like, I don't like you anymore. I don't want to talk to you anymore. We're not going to be friends. And this sends Parrick into a spiral. This is his best friend. And he spends the rest of the movie not leaving him alone and trying to still be friends with him. Meanwhile, Pyrek has a sister who is a librarian and she is certainly understimulated by being on the island. There's also a young kid on the island named Dominic who is the town idiot and he's known for always pestering the the ladies, but we come to find out that his father is extremely abusive towards him. His father is also the only cop on the island, which is a whole disaster. 
And so it escalates between Calm and Parak to the point where Calm is like, if you do not stop talking to me, and Calm is a violinist. He doesn't want to talk to Parak anymore because he's decided Parak's too boring and he needs to focus his life on writing a great song so he'll be remembered in perpetuity. And so he's like, if you do not stop talking to me, I'm going to start cutting my fingers off and leaving them at your door. And Parag is like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever. And his sister's like, he's not really going to do that. But he won't stop talking to him. And then in one scene, Colm comes to his house and he chucks something at his door and it is one of his fingers. And he's chopped off one of his fingers and it's wild. And so unfortunately, oh, they have like a, a argument in the pub and Colm is like, that's the most interesting he's ever been. So Parag thinks that they've turned a, a new leaf and Colm has finished his song. So he's like, okay, we can be friends again. He goes to invite him to the pub, but he hasn't turned a new leaf. And Colm proceeds to cut off the rest of his fingers on his left hand. And around the same time, Park's sister decides to leave. She's gotten a job on the mainland. It seems like the war is petering out, so it's going to be safe. And she just wants more from her life. So she ends up moving away, not before Dominic confesses his love to her and asks if she could ever see herself falling in love with a boy like him. And she tells him no. And he's like, okay. And the movie, that's so sad. And after chucking his remaining fingers at Park's door, Park's beloved donkey, Jenny, who's basically his house pet, chokes on one of the fingers. And Park can't be kind anymore. It's like all the love has gone out of his heart. So, you know, he's heartbroken. His sister has left. His friendship is over. Jenny is dead. Jenny is dead. Jenny the donkey is dead. He borns down Park's house and Park is like, Oh, no, Park burns down Combs' house. And Combs is like, so are we even? And Park is like, no, we'll never be even. This is going to last forever. There are some things that can't be forgiven. Yeah. How'd you feel about the Banshees of Inishirin? I really like it. (laughs) I think the acting is great. I love the dialogue. The writing is fantastic. Premise is insane in a way that really works for me. Like Mm. just the... First of all, a f- best friend deciding he no longer wants to be friends with his best friend because he just finds him boring. And like, that's, it's like crazy. <laughs> There's something mind boggling about it. And then the way that it disrupts the entire island is fascinating and no one can understand how this could be. It's like the weirdest thing that's ever happened on this island of people. And the way it spirals, I think is interesting. It becomes like sort of fantastical as it goes along. I don't know how much you could really believe that like, a real person would cut off their fingers so their friend wouldn't talk to them. But the way that it builds like emotionally and narratively, I think really works. And the, you know, the performances are just so good. Everybody from it is nominated for best actor or supporting actor. And I think they totally deserve it. They're all so good. The reteaming of Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson in another Martin McDonough movie. I, this is a type of Martin McDonough movie that works a lot better for me, we will end up talking about three billboards at one point, which is mm. not a favorite of mine. So I very much enjoyed it. And I want to hear what you said. But then I also want to talk about the interesting critique from an Irish person about it, yeah. <laughs> which I found to be really interesting. So yeah, I had said I would be mad. But if I'm honest, if it weren't for like the greater cultural context of everything ever all at once, I would not be mad. I love this movie. Mm-hmm. It the, the premise is like, it's absurd. It's an absurdist yeah. play. That's 100% up my alley. He wakes up one morning, he's like, I don't want to be friends with you anymore. And I'm going to go to extreme lengths 
to not be friends with you anymore. You know, you're a normal person. I'm a normal person. We're like Pyrrhic and his sister. We're like, he's not really going to cut his fingers off. Of that course would be. not. Who would actually do that? <laughs> and then he does. And you're like, oh my God, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. I love it when movies get weird and they do things you don't expect them to do. And I don't expect a man to cut his fingers off. And then he never even bandages them, which is also wild. He just Just lets it be and his dog licks it. (laughs) What the hell? (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's beautifully shot. It looks beautiful. It's beautifully acted. There's a number of scenes that I I really, really loved in this movie and I found absolutely heartbreaking. And then, you know... It's interesting to think about this with everything everywhere all at once, because I think thematically there are two sides of the coin. They're both about kindness. Brendan Gleeson's character is like, I need to write this great music. I need to be remembered through the ages. But you know what really persists through time? Drama. Drama and hate. (laughs) Yep. And I think that's the allegory for the Civil War as well. It's a difficult loop to get out of once you started it. He didn't have to wake up and stop being friends with his friend to write some stupid piece of music. He could have just gone it's on. not that good of a piece of music. What's funny to me about it is when his whole point is like, Mozart will always be yeah. remembered. And I'm like, do you think you're Mozart? You're just some guy. Well, also, okay, so the, the scene, I love that scene. I love that scene because I think it's the thesis of it where Park is saying, like, it's I remember so, my mom great, great speech, because yeah. she was kind. I remember my dad because he was kind of, I'll always remember my sister because she's kind. And then he's like, well, you know, Mozart wrote this in the 17th century. And then the sister's like, actually, it's the 18th century. And you're like, oh, yeah, we've remembered this guy for 150 years at this point. Oh, whoop-dee-doo. <laughs> like, that's in the <laughs> scheme of things. It's not a very long time. But, yeah, these conflicts and wars go on for generations and generations and mm-hmm. hundreds of years. I liked it, too, in relation to Tar of this takedown of, like, art, it's the most important thing. I must only focus on my art. Who cares how I am to other people? And you're like, yep. it doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean... What mostly affects people is how you are to them. Like the people in your life and how they treat you is more important to everyone than some great work of art. You know, like there's always going to be art. It doesn't have to be your specific art. Someone's going to make some art. It's going to be fine. But yeah, I love that scene. I love the scene when there's, I think it's before he cuts off any of his fingers, when Park gets into the fight with the cop and then Brendan Gleeson still helps him get home. That scene breaks my heart hard the cop beats him up and brendan gleason sees it happen and he comes over and he picks him up and he puts him in his cart and he puts his arm around him and he drives mm-hmm. him most of the way home and they're in silence the whole time and they get to the part where column is gonna have to get off the cart and park starts crying and column just leaves mm-hmm. <laughs> he just walks away and you're like how can you do this so cool. oh my god what a good scene and then, yeah, I love this scene where Barry Keegan asks Carrie Condon if she could ever imagine falling in love with a boy like him. And you're like, oh, Barry, you're breaking my heart. It's so sad. Because it's oh. like, obviously, no individual woman is responsible for falling in love with any individual man. But it's still sad when a character is like, I have no love in my life. I would like to have some love in my life. And you're like, yeah, man, that's reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because... What he really needs is family, of course, because Mm -hmm. he's been abandoned by the only family (laughs) that he's ever had and and tortured by his dad. And so there's this opportunity for him to be kind of taken in by the brother and sister who do let him stay with them for one night, but they mostly see him as like a nuisance. And so there's never any place for him. And you're like, Dominic, I feel so bad. (laughs) He's so alone. (laughs) 
so sad. Kid. Oh my god. But yeah, I liked it a lot. I think that sounds a winner. So yeah, I think there's this interesting other layer to it. I think as a piece for me, it's mostly about kindness, the way we are to the people that we love. But it's also just this fantastical, absurd, fascinating story. But there, of course, is a way to read it as more of a political statement. We read this interesting piece by an Irish person about Martin McDonough, generally, which I guess I didn't know this. He's not Irish. He has Irish heritage, but he's Mm -hmm. from London. But he writes mostly Irish stuff. And there has apparently long been some commentary about like his writing and how good and or bad it is in terms of commentary about Ireland. Like Mm -hmm. he's playing on a lot of specific Irish tropes in the stuff that he does. And like, he's doing it for humor. Is it satire? Is he poking fun at the tropes? Or is he using the tropes to poke fun at Irish people? Like it's a thin line, (laughs) as we all know. The more interesting thing to me about this article that this person wrote was a more political critique of the movie. If you read the movie as, you know, metaphor for the Irish Civil War, there's a way to read it where the message is like, no one even knows why they're fighting. (laughs) It shouldn't have started. It's just this dumb battle and wars are dumb when there are reasons why people were fighting each other. But what made it interesting to me was the idea that there's this conversation in Ireland about how effective Martin McDonough is at political commentary when I absolutely agree with that from an American perspective because of how ineffective I think his political commentary in Three Billboards was. That's what Mm. makes this interesting to me is maybe Martin McDonough should just be steering clear of politics. (laughs) It's not for him. Yeah. I mean, I think if you're looking at this movie with specificity, it's potentially a problem. Yeah. But I think that's usually how absurdism as a genre works. So if you're positioning it within the genre of like absurdist theater or film in this case, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it's a problem because the reality is wars are stupid. Mm -hmm. There is no good reason to start. We're about to get into that in another movie. (laughs) We really are. So again, I think people do feel that they have reasons for why there's war. And of course there's, Like, you know, it's like, it's the difference between I'm explaining something to you and I'm justifying something to you, right? Mm -hmm. There's an explanation for why every war started. There's an explanation for why, and we'll get into it, World War I started, the most absurd of all wars. Yes. But really, when you look at World War I, you're like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever learned about. Exactly. (laughs) Doesn't mean the people on the ground didn't think they had reasons. And so, yeah, I think if if you can step away and look at it a bit more globally, it works. Well, to to me... I really, really, really enjoyed this movie, and it's Mm -hmm. because I didn't come into it with any specific (laughs) expectations of that. I think it's interesting conversation if you are reading it politically and if you're reading it in the context of Martin McDonough's career. I just think that was really interesting. What stuck with me, though, was that parallel to my own thoughts about a movie that we haven't seen. Yeah, I haven't seen Three Billboards, so I I don't have my own opinion about it. So yeah, The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Yeah. A good time. I also like the scene after Parag tells that guy who's visiting from the music school that his dad died in the milk truck. And then Dominic is like, that's the meanest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. I thought you were a nice guy, but it turns out you're just like the rest of them. And you're like, oh, God, Dominic. (laughs) I liked it a lot. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. Okay. More war. Yay. All quiet on the Western front. It is based on a novel by a German soldier from World War One, And so it starts with 
kind of like a Saving Private Ryan-esque action sequence. We're beginning in the war. It's trench warfare. It's total chaos. Our guy that we think is going to be our main character, 10 minutes into the movie, dies graphically. (laughs) Everything is going horribly. He's dead. Then we follow his clothes, like his coat that has his name sewn into it, through this process where it gets sent back to Germany and repaired. They clean it. They fix it up. There, it's ready to get given to the next guy. Meanwhile, we've met another, like a 17-year-old and his friends who all are getting permission slips signed by their parents so that they can go join the war. They're caught up in kind of the nationalist fervor of it. And our new main character <laughs> gets given the coat of the kid that just died. We see him get handed his new stuff. He gets the coat. He sees that there's a name in it. And he's like, oh, I think I got given someone else's coat. And they're like, oh, that was just a mistake. And they take off the name tag and they throw it in a pile with the thousands of other name tags of the other dead kids. So you're starting in this place of like, whoo, this is dark. A lot of people and they And they tell the kids as they're getting them ready to go, you'll be in Paris in six weeks. Well, we've had this conversation a thousand times on this podcast at this point. Every war ever, the people thought it was going to last a couple of months. Yeah. <laughs> no one's like, don't worry, it'll be over by Christmas. <laughs> like, it never is, guys. Nope. So, okay. our new group of characters head off to war. They're all excited. They get to the front, they head into the trenches. And pretty quickly, things are not what they expected. The war is violent and terrible. People are immediately getting killed. There's a pretty early scene where a bunch of people have died, but the fighting has died down. Our main character is sent off to collect the dog tags of all of the dead people. It's this like very vivid introduction to war. And so, you know, the war progresses. He has this group of friends. Some of them are making it through. Some of them aren't. There are parts where they're engaged in really intense battle at the trenches. There are parts where they've been pulled back from the front and they're living these very boring, not a lot happening parts of their life where they're just sitting around with not a lot of food and not a lot to do, as is the seemingly the nature of war. As all of this is happening, we're seeing the diplomatic side of it all. The German commanders are realizing that they're probably not going to win the war. They've lost tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of, <laughs> of men. And so it's approaching a point where they feel like they're going to have to negotiate a, a surrender. Daniel Bruhl is ready to negotiate a surrender. So we're following them. We're also following a military commander who is trying to live up to his war hero parentage and is really adamant that the fighting continue. And so we're cutting back and forth between them and the boys. It's war. It's long. It's horrible. It's very vivid and terrible the whole way through. We finally get to what is supposed to be the end, right? The Germans Mm -hmm. are agreeing to surrender and they say that there's going to be a ceasefire in 12 hours or something yeah. from when they sign the next day. Yeah. So they've heard that the war is over. Everyone is rejoicing. And then we find out that the military commander is not ready for the war to be over. So because they have until 11 a.m. before the ceasefire, we're going to do one last fight. We're going to go out like war heroes instead of like loser babies, whatever he thinks of the people who surrender. So he gets them all together. They're going to do one last attack on the French trenches. And meanwhile, all the French people are there like, war's over. Great. It's all good. (laughs) Hanging on the trench. And then these Germans show up. 
It's again, super horrible. Lots of people die. And of course, our main character ends up getting killed in this battle moments before the ceasefire begins. And it's about the absurdity of war and how terrible it all is. Yeah, and I will say specifically for that last push, in a previous scene, one of the other friends who had died, he had put up a poster of the trench that they were in. And in in the trench that they yeah, were in. Yeah, sorry, no, poster <laughs> of the trench. That would be crazy. He'd put up a poster of a lady in the trench that they were in. And then you see as they're trying to take this last French trench, and this is the whole thing with World War One, and they say this in the, in the end cards, they were fighting for years and years and years to to move feet. And so yeah, this and last three push, million soldiers died at this yeah. front. The last push that they've made is just to recapture the trench that they had had like four weeks before because we see this poster again. And you're like, hmm. okay, so our kid died to get back to where they were a few weeks, months, whatever it was ago. World War One, dude. It's the absurd. War is stupid. War. It truly is. That's what I'm saying. I don't disagree you know, with you. When I was starting this movie, I'm like, okay, this is a movie that's going to be like, war is bad. Do we mm-hmm. need another war is bad movie? But then I was like, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine this year, so I guess so. War is still happening. Maybe people need to keep saying this. It hasn't sunk in yet, so we just, we got to keep trying our best. Mm-hmm. I thought this movie was beautifully shot. When you mentioned there's that sort of Saving Private Ryan scene early on. We start off with a fox in a burrow and then we zoom out and then we get into this overhead shot and it looks like the field is just gray. And then as they zoom in, you start to see it's littered with bodies. And I thought that was quite striking in terms of the imagery. But yeah, that whole opening where you think you're following this guy and it's just it's just the the machine of turning over young men Mm -hmm. and you see how little the state cares about these people. And they say it early on. And that's that we'll be in Paris in six weeks. The guy is like, the individual doesn't matter. It's about the collective. And you're like, yeah, I can tell that because you were churning through young men. And then it's interesting that the only character really that we get who cares about the individual is Daniel Brühl, who's there because his son has died in the war. And so he's like, we need to end this war now, not tomorrow, not two days from now, but now, because every minute that we don't end it, more people are dying. And you're like, yeah, (laughs) really fucking are. Why can't the ceasefire start now as soon as you hear the war is over? Not at 11 a.m. tomorrow. I don't know. (sighs) It's rough. You know, they made this movie for only $20 million. I did not know Doesn't it look stunning? It looks really good. There's a couple of sort of lower budget movies this year that look stunning. Everything Everywhere is also low budget. Yeah. Why are we giving Martin Scorsese hundreds of millions of dollars to make The Irishman? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I'm shocked by that because it looks gorgeous. It's stunning. And then some of the action scenes are... They're horrific, but they're spectacular. There's a particular Mm -hmm. one where the tanks come and they're rolling over the trenches. Yeah. It's wild. All the tank stuff was great, but the emergence of the tanks worked so well because they shoot it like a monster in a horror movie. Mm -hmm. It's coming out of the smoke. I literally was like, what is that? (laughs) I was like, oh yeah, tanks. (laughs) But it feels like a monster has arrived on the scene and it is like that. They're all about to get fucked by this crazy beast thing and then they also bring flamethrowers like the shit yeah. the, the reason world war one is the perfect war for a movie or any sort of anti-war media is there's nothing like it in terms of no one understands what the fuck is going on and why we're fighting it and then the scope 
and scale of it. And it's people doing the worst imaginable things to each other forever for no reason. (laughs) It like wouldn't end. And And it's so horrible. For no reason in terms of the motivations, but for no gain. That's why the front is such an interesting place to set it because they are fighting for years to move a hundred yards or whatever it was. Yeah, like some bullshit tiny amount of distance. Yeah. Like they got nothing done. They accomplished nothing. And they burned through three million guys at the Western Front for no reason. Yeah. It's pretty fucked. It's pretty bad. I loved just the little things that I liked about this movie. I was obsessed with the way that every time they cut from the front to the rich guys deciding everything, they were eating Mm -hmm. something. Every time they cut to one of them, they were eating some fancy, beautiful pastry or like having coffee in these gorgeous ceramic cups (laughs) and cutting from the worst stuff you've ever seen to these guys who are like having a bad time thinking about how to end the war. But Mm -hmm. one of the at one point, a guy tastes a croissant and he's like, oh, no, I think these croissants are stale. And he makes the guy that works for him taste the croissant. And that guy's like, I'm so sorry. You're right. They are stale. And you're like, oh, my God. It's so effective. I thought similarly they did interesting things with a commander who's at the front, but he's always in this mansion sort of Mm -hmm. away from the line. And every conversation he has with his assistant is like, this is why we shouldn't let military officials make any actual decisions. I know. Well, and okay, him sending them off to fight at the end because he has this thing about how his dad was a war hero and his grandpa was a war hero and he needs to also be a war hero. He doesn't even go. He sits back at the mansion while he sends off these guys. And it's like, how do you think this is even emotionally going to make you feel like a war hero? What do you think you're going to get out of this? (laughs) He has in a conversation with that attache or assistant, I I don't know what that guy's role is, whose name is Brixdorf, I think. And Brickstore mm-hmm. says something about the French forces and the general's response is thinking about the guys who are negotiating the armistice. The social Democrats will be the end of mankind. And I love that uh-huh. Brickstorf, his assistant, was just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> his assistant is like, not buying into anything. You're literally trying to kill everyone, but the social Democrats yeah. will be the end of mankind. Every man in Germany you would be willing to annihilate. But yes. That guy is fascinating. I just think everybody in it work so well i i saw some critiques where they were like it's hard to connect with the guys because they're not that specific or we're not spending enough time with them but i just think it works so well there's enough to each of the kids but there's Mm -hmm. also enough of a vagueness about them that you get the sense which is the point of the movie that there were just millions of boys exactly like this that this happened to and they're all different but they're so many of them they're all the same they're 17 year olds (laughs) they're children 17 year olds yeah and I thought the lead guy, Felix Kemmerer, I thought he was great. He's great. And I love the guy that played Cat. Cat, his character, carries around a beetle in a box because he wants to have a little pet with him. And as soon as they revealed that, I was like, if Cat dies, I'm going to be devastated. <laughs> I knew that he was going to die. But then to die for such a dumb reason. That's what's so good about all of it is it's just futile and chance and dumb luck and horrible deaths for these people and they should have been free they should have been done the war was over they're all ruined the war has ruined all of their lives ongoing trauma the cycle of violence (sighs) oh man (laughs) i thought it was good i really loved it It really it's really upsetting i just really liked it 
what a good movie. I mean, it's hard to watch. You got to be ready for what you're yeah. going to get. But tough. that's what makes it so good. It's incredibly effective. I wrote down, it's doing its job because halfway through, I'm furious. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Oh, the, the other made me so angry. The other really upsetting scene that I think is worth mentioning is they're supposed to meet or a new group of kids are supposed to come and meet them and they don't oh, arrive. Man. Yeah. And so they go out looking for them and they had been gassed and they all took their masks off too soon. So they walk into this room of just like what, like a hundred dead seventeen year olds on the ground. Yeah. Like, just oh it's all so pointless. All these dead kids. And yeah, that you gotta have the gas too because it's the tanks and the flamethrowers mm-hmm. and the gas weapons, like the bioweapons and stuff yeah. that were rolling out. It's just ugly. We'd gotten too good at making ways to kill people. It's really, really ugly. What a bad war. Yeah. It's honestly really blowing my mind that this movie only cost $20 million to make. Yeah. I think people outside of Hollywood understand how to pinch their pennies on a production. Hollywood budgets have just gotten totally insane. Out of control. Yeah. The cast is great. The directing is great. It's beautiful. The moral of the story is wonderful. The story works as well as ever. And I bet that this book by this German guy is really good, but I've never read it. Me too. I was thinking I'd like to read it. I tried to check out an audiobook, but there was a queue at my library. I was like, well, maybe this movie's working. People are reading the Oh, book. I hope so. The yeah. All Quiet on the Western Front is having like a cultural moment. People are reading the book. I was like sixth in line to check out the audiobook via my public library. So Hell I feel yeah. like that's not a coincidence. That's good. All right. I loved it. Let's change tones. (laughs) Very much so. (laughs) So as we said, The Fablemans is like a semi-autobiographical story of Steven Spielberg's youth. So basically we start when he's a pretty young child and his parents are taking him to the movies and they're trying to explain to him what a movie is. And he's like, I'm freaked out. I'm not sure about this. But they take him in and it's part of the movie. There's a train crash sequence where a train crashes into a car and then a bunch of animals escape. And this is reoccupying tiny Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. So over Hanukkah, his parents buy him a train set because they think that's what he is really getting at. And that's what he asked for. But it's not sating his need what he needs is to see the train crash he needs to see it crash over and over again so then his parents decide that they'll use their dad's camera to make a recording of it so that well, he his, can just watch his it mom decides yes they don't tell the dad they don't tell the dad and so it's pretty funny because the mom is like you can make the train crash one time and then that's it. And then they, she shows her the movie he's made. And he's made it crash a bunch of time because there's like cuts and he's doing different angles. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, I had to do it a couple times, but the train is fine. <laughs> and so what he's discovering, right, is what he, he really likes is filmmaking. And his mom makes a comment about like what he needs is control. He needs a universe he can control. And his dad is apparently like a br- brilliant computer guy. He works, I forget what company he works at initially. It's probably, it's a small company in New Jersey with their family friend, Benny and Benny's always coming over for dinner and hanging out with everyone. The parents and Benny get along really well. And then the dad gets a job offer from GE in Arizona. So they're going to have to move to Arizona for this job. And the mom is really upset about him leaving Benny, his employee, behind. And the dad is like, I can't get him a job right now, maybe a little bit in the future. I just don't have any pull 
at the moment. So she's very upset that they're not taking their friend with them. But they move to Arizona. While they're there, the mom's mother passed away and and she's very depressed. Oh, this is after they've gone on a camping trip. They go on a camping trip as a family with Benny, Uncle Benny. And after the, the grandmother passes away, the dad asks Sammy, Sammy is the Steven Spielberg stand in to make a film of their camping trip to make the mom happy. And as he's doing that, he notices in the footage that basically his mom is having an affair with Benny. And this rocks his world. He ends up not talking to the mom for a long time. Eventually, he reveals to his mom that he knows about the affair, but he promises they won't tell the dad. And so the dad gets another job offer this time from IBM to like really build the computers of the future. I did not know that. I don't, is this true? It's a huge <laughs> deal. Yeah, it's a huge deal. And the mom really doesn't want to move, but they end up going for this new job. And the mom's like, can we bring Benny again? And the dad's like, Benny is not smart enough for this work, which is honestly pretty rough, but maybe true. I don't know. It seems like it's tough work (laughs) to invent the computers of the future. And so they move to California and immediately in this new school, Sammy's having a hard time. The kids are like super anti-Semitic. He's getting hassled, but he gets a girlfriend who's friends with a popular girl and the other kids kind of stop bothering him. But Sammy's still upset to be living in California. They're all angry at the dad for dragging them away from Arizona where they were happy. And obviously the mom is super depressed about having left Benny because she's really in love with him. Mm -hmm. And so the parents end up getting a divorce. The mom ends up marrying Benny back in Arizona. But Sammy's old enough to go to college. He tries that. It's not working out for him. He tries to get a job down at the studio. And the end of the film is us seeing him negotiating to get a job on Hogan's Heroes. And also then he gets to meet his hero, John Ford, at the end in a very The greatest director who ever lived. And that's the movie. That's The Fablements. It is. It's some classic Spielberg family fun times about his love of movies and some emotional drama. And Mm -hmm. I think it's quite good. Yeah, I really like the way that he has handled telling this story. It's hard, I think, to tell stories about people this close to you. And I find that it probably is helpful that he waited until he was like, what is he, in his 80s? Yeah. <laughs> he waited for both of his parents to die and his dad was 103 when he died. So he's processed whatever <laughs> it is that yeah. he went through. And I find it to be just like a pretty gracious and loving portrait of both of his parents. They're flawed, but... It's such a dramatic thing to have happened to you when you were a kid. And I think you, in the moment, are probably reading it as violence against you as a person. But to be able to look back and be like, these are both adults. They had a difficult relationship. They had inner lives and were going through whatever they were going through. And you sort of leave it like they both loved him a lot. He loved Mm -hmm. them a lot. And they did the best that they could (laughs) in these situations, which is warm and feels very Spielberg-y to me. That that is, I felt like, what I was left with from his family and then you know it's just fun to see where his love of movies came from it's nice to see that he clearly is a great lover of art and movies and this movie is doing interesting stuff it's kind of in conversation with tar and the other movies about people who make art and the cost of it because there's great we didn't even talk about judd hirsch but judd Mm -hmm. hirsch who's nominated for best supporting actor has a scene basically in this movie where he shows up from out of nowhere he's the brother of steven's mother's mother and he is somebody who works in hollywood sammy is still trying to figure out what he wants to do he clearly is very passionate about making movies but his dad always is like that's a hobby 
you'll figure out mm-hmm. something you want to do. But making movies is a hobby. So like, don't put too much into it. Don't spend too much on it. And Sammy can't help the draw that he has to it. And the uncle comes into town and is basically like, I see that this is going to be your life. There's always going to be attention in you because you need to make art. You may love your family, but you need to make movies. And so there's this interesting interplay between the compulsion he feels to make art mm. and how that's going to play on his relationships as a person which i thought was a cool through line and i wonder how steven feels about his personal relationships throughout the course of his life but yeah and i think to your point about it being a sweet portrait of his parents you see what he gets from both of his parents so his mother i didn't mention it was a concert pianist and her uncle yeah was saying like oh she could have been one of the greats. she could have played anywhere and so like the filmmaking that we see right it's a mix of creativity obviously but it also is a mix of his father's engineering. He mm-hmm. is figuring out, hey, he can work all of these machines. He gets yeah. this editing machine and he can work it. But you see him problem solving through particularly one of the first films he makes for the Boy Scout badge. I love that. Where he wants the gunshots to have muzzle flashes. And so he figures out that if he pokes holes in the film, it, the light will flash through and it'll look like a muzzle flash, right? Like yeah. that's a very engineering mind thing to And his do. dad's so proud of him for he it. Really I love when his dad's like, how did you do that? And he's like, oh, I poked holes in it. And his he's like, you're an engineer. Like the dad, <laughs> yeah. they both just want to see themselves in him so much. Yeah. So that's very sweet. And yeah, I mean, you've got lovely Spielberg jokes and touches mm-hmm. and a couple of my favorite scenes. I really like the scene when he's making his war movie as oh sort God, of things are falling so apart at home. And yeah. he's directing the lead war actor to, about how he's going to feel when he sees his fallen soldiers and he's explaining to him and he brings tears to the kid's eyes as he's explaining to him what happened. And so you're like, Steven, the director. Yeah. 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 You're like, this must happen all the time. <laughs> So that is really fascinating. There's an interesting thing throughout it, which I assume is speaking to his own psyche, where he presents Sammy almost all the time as an outsider and an observer to Mm -hmm. the life that the rest of his family is leading, right? As soon as he starts becoming this person who is directing and filming everything. And I think that probably is like his parents think he has this anxiety and he does have anxiety as a child and his mom is like well he just needs to control it and so he's done that by becoming the observer of the life and so then from then on there are all of these scenes where dramatic stuff's happening with the family and he's sitting in the corner watching it yeah like the staging of the scene where his mother's mother dies i think is so interesting where she's laying on the bed with her mother devastated and the father is close but not with her because he's trying to bridge this emotional gap between the two of them that they have and then all of the daughters are together on a chair going through this together and then Stephen is in the far corner watching the whole thing happen it's really interesting staging so I wonder if he feels like all of it is so interesting because you're like does he feel like a an observer in his own life is he having trouble connecting to people how does this speak to his emotions about his life it's really interesting yeah and it's quite similar and i think it becomes literal right in the scene where the parents announce their divorce he imagines himself filming the scene and that's such an interesting one because he's the only one who knew about the affair, right? Yeah. So then there's that element of it's also not a surprise to him. He maybe is not as invested at, because he never is as in the moment. He's always watching. But there's also the sisters are being met with this information for the first time and feel right. the betrayal of it. And he's like, yeah, this is probably what I expected to happen. I also just want to mention Chad. Chad is the main jock's little lackey friend who is 
just the most insane bully character you've ever seen in a movie. Like, take any 80s bully and turn him up to 11, and that's Chad. And he's wild. He does have an 80s vibe to him. (laughs) Yeah. He's out of control. What was interesting to me was they go to Northern California and then start having all these experiences with anti-Semites everywhere. And I was like, were there a lot of Jewish people in Arizona when you were living there? question, too. (laughs) It feels like an interesting, like... New Jersey? Absolutely. You were at home in New Jersey, but then you went to Arizona and were welcomed into the arms of the Jewish community of Phoenix or wherever you are. I don't know. there were. Although it was interesting, too, in their home in New Jersey, they made it clear they were the only Jews in their neighborhood. Because when they're driving in- Which is interesting because there are lots of Jews in New Jersey. So there's an interesting thing going on with why are they the only Jews in the neighborhood? Oh, I have to say, in terms of a Spielbergian- And maybe this is just like where he gets this, his love for tiny little bits of detail about people that make you feel the character as a whole. I'm obsessed with the fact that they use plastic silverware and that throwaway. Yes. They have a throwaway tablecloth and paper plates and plastic forks every time they eat. And then at the end of the dinner, his mom will be like, okay, everybody get out of the way. And they like just (laughs) wrap the whole thing up and throw it away. (laughs) So it's like... Obviously, you're watching and you're like, this is very 50s. It's not great yeah. for us to be throwing away all the shit. But it also, so I wasteful. feel like, tells, it's so wasteful, but it tells you so much about everything going on in the family. It tells you yes. everything about the mother and the fact that she's like, it's the 50s, but I'm not going to do your housewife cleaning all the time thing. We're not doing that. And it tells you about her relationship with the husband who was like, yeah, this is great. This is what we do. <laughs> like Everybody's fine with it. And it's so interesting. The only person who doesn't like it, of course, is the husband's mother, who's very traditional and doesn't yes. like anything that Stephen's mother does. But I just thought that was such a cool little character thing that I'm sure is true to life. Mm-hmm. It's just so much fun. Oh, the John Ford scene's great. I do want to talk about the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. So he gets a letter back from one of the studios he's written to, and they're like, come in, we'll talk. And the guy's like, we can maybe get you something on Hogan's Heroes next season. And then he's like, you're a filmmaker, right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, you want to meet John Ford? He's next door. He doesn't say that. He says, you want to meet oh, the yeah. greatest director who ever lived? Yeah. And he's like, sure. And so then they take him next door and they he's out to lunch or something. And they sit him down and he realizes it's just John Ford because they see all the posters. It's Stagecoach. It's the Searchers. We've talked about it. It's John Ford. And so he's waiting. And then John Ford comes back in covered in lipstick. <laughs> Who knows what that man gets up to? <laughs> and his, his secretary runs in with tissues and I guess cleans off all his lipstick stains. And she's like, all right, you got five minutes. And so he goes into John Ford's office and it's David Lynch wearing an eye patch, being John Ford. And John Ford is like, go over to that painting. And Sammy's like, what? He's like, go over to the painting. Tell me Where's what the you horizon? see. Well, no, he says, tell me what you see. Oh, yeah. And Sammy starts going like, well, it's two guys on horseback and they're in the <laughs> West and they're right. He's like, no, where's the horizon? Up, up here? Yes! That, okay. At the top? Go, go over to this painting. What do you see? Uh, it's a bunch of guys around a watering... No, where's the horizon? Down here? Yes. And he's like, there's only one thing that I've learned about film. I forget exactly what he says. But he's talking about the horizon. He's like, when the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. How good luck to you and get the fuck out of my office. And then the thing I love most, the thing I love most the is camera we, follow, we follow Sammy out of the office 
and he's walking down the lot and you very visibly see like it's not a smooth pan it's a very visible camera move so that the horizon is not in the middle of the frame it's at the bottom and yeah you're like this fills me with joy and warmth and i love you steven spielberg and you're one of a kind yeah it's great the scene is great it's the perfect like yeah that's all you need to know about movie making kid like the (laughs) advice is fabulous and then yeah the camera joke it reminded me a little bit of our conversation about Grand Budapest all the ways that Wes Anderson plays jokes with just where you put the camera which I think is like that's advanced filmmaking (laughs) if they can make you laugh just by moving the camera in a certain way and then yeah this scene of him walking off in the horizons in the middle and then they're like oh shit (laughs) Really, really good. Steven Spielberg, the man can make movies. It's the warm embrace of a Steven Spielberg movie. Mm -hmm. I love the early montage of him making movies of his sisters. And then as he gets into his later filmmaking stuff with his high school friends, his sisters go, are you ever going to make a movie with girls in it again? (laughs) (laughs) There's some really good meta jokes in this. I also liked when he was talking to the bully after he filmed him. And he's like, I'll never talk about it unless I make a movie about it. (laughs) That was good. (laughs) Nice. I'm excited for Steven Spielberg that this is his first nomination in the screenplay category. Yeah. Very cool for him. Wrote it with his old pal, Tony Kushner. It's quite good, unsurprisingly. Love Paul Dano. Love Michelle Williams. Love Seth Rogen. The whole cast is good. Judd Hirsch. We love Judd Hirsch. Judd Hirsch is amazing. I mean, he comes in like a whirlwind and he leaves a hell of an impression. And I thought the young kid did very well, too. Gabriel. Although this, it also made me realize, I was like, is Steven Spielberg really short? And then I Googled him and he's only five foot eight. He's a little guy. Yeah. I think he's shorter than five foot eight. He probably is. The internet next to people. (laughs) He does. The internet, the internet claims he's five foot eight, which does probably mean he's shorter than that. He's like five foot six. Yeah. I like when they show up in Northern California and everyone is so tall though. And all of them are so teeny and they're like, it's like we've parachuted into the the land of giants. Yeah. Okay, that brings us to our double yes. Yep. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Ooh, how to summarize this movie. How to summarize this movie. We could go in less detail or more detail. I think we need to do less detail. I agree with that. I think that's the play. I think, I mean, you know, we say we do spoilers for all these movies, but honestly, if you have somehow not seen this movie, go into it blank. Yeah, stop listening to the podcast now and go watch the movie. But for those of you who have seen it, then you don't need much of a description. You've got your Michelle Yeoh character. She and her husband own a laundromat. They're living very normal lives. Her father is elderly and is visiting. She has a daughter who's a lesbian. So that's a little bit of a point of contention with her too. They are behind on their taxes. They've been working with this woman from the IRS to try to figure out how to sort through all of the tax madness. And so they go to a meeting with Jamie Lee Curtis, who's the one who works at the IRS. And on their way into this meeting, something happens where a different presence comes into her husband and says to Michelle Yeoh, you're in danger. You need to do these very specific things. And he gives her a list of, he writes down. Odd instructions. Odd instructions. (laughs) So he's like, you're going to go to your meeting and then you're going to do these things. She does follow the instructions and it ends up kicking off a fantastical journey through space and time (laughs) where there's a multiverse In one of the universes, she is a genius scientist person who figures out how to travel between universes, or at least travel consciousnesses between Mm -hmm. universes. And she has the same husband and daughter. And in this universe, 
she's worked her daughter too hard trying to send her through universes and her daughter has become this kind of all-powerful being who can of chaos of chaos who can be in all universes at once and is kind of intent on destruction because nothing means anything to her anymore they're trying to stop her she's trying to find a version of her mother basically who will be able to do the same thing as her so our michelle yo character she won't kill her version of her daughter or any version of her daughter she's like Mm -hmm. i have to save her i love my daughter i will not kill her you all have to be wrong and i will figure out a way to win her back over so then it becomes this journey of trying to win the daughter over she's also got the interpersonal stuff going on with her real life daughter from this universe Mm -hmm. and the stuff with her husband she finds out that her husband was trying to divorce her so they are trying to have that argument in between various crazy fights and stuff. So we visited all these different universes. We get to a place where she has captured the full powers of being able to go to whatever universe she wants to go to. Her daughter is like, this is all I wanted, right? I wanted you to be able to see what I see. And the two of us are going to basically go off into oblivion together. But lovely husband of hers is the kindest soul who has ever lived and is there to show her that kindness is what matters and the way that we treat each other. And you're right that it has echoes in Banshees of Inishirin. And so she realizes that, yes, he's right. Kindness is very important. We need to love each other. The daughter is like, okay, fine. If you aren't going to come with me into the Everything Bagel, then I'll just go myself. And so she's like trying to stop her. And she realizes through the course of this battle that even though her fighting skills are amazing, what really will win the battle is her niceness skills. (laughs) So she starts like the way she fights everyone is to make them really happy, basically. Mm -hmm. And then they no longer want to fight her. And she's working her way through all these, you know, minions. And she finally gets to the daughter and the power of niceness prevails. And in our real world, everything had been about to collapse because Jamie Lee Curtis showed up to take back their laundromat Mm -hmm. because they're behind. But the husband talks her out of it. And basically what he does is just appeal to her on a personal level and tell her that they're having marital difficulties. (laughs) And this woman really relates to that because she's also been through a divorce. And she's like, you know what, just let them have some time. And it's about connecting to people and I didn't even talk about Rakakuni but that's the best part. We, we can get back to Rakakuni. I think for me in the end right when the alternate Waylon when the alternate key arrives he's like you have to save the multiverse right mm-hmm. but in the end she saves her universe what matters to her and that's yep. her family. Yeah. That's like the message. And that ends up saving the multiverse. It does. Mm-hmm. Kindness and love prevail. It's very sweet. It's good. And it's also super cool and hilarious and the weirdest thing you'll watch this year. Yeah. It's great. I loved it. I thought it was inventive and fun and beautiful and moving. It was everything. It was everything. All at once. All at once. (laughs) (laughs) And it was interesting because I just watched this movie, but when it came out, I heard all the chatter. So it was pretty hyped up. I have a friend who is a queer Chinese American person. This must have hit hard. It really spoke to her. She doesn't usually watch (laughs) movies. And she was like, talk about someone who doesn't usually see themselves on screen. (laughs) So I had a Spielberg moment. It exceeded my expectations. I had super high expectations. Everyone was talking about it. And 
I was super moved. I had a great time. Everyone's wonderful in it. But it is a kind of movie where like if someone doesn't know what it's about, I don't want to tell them. You have to experience just watch the it. whole thing. You just yeah. got to go on the journey with the movie because it starts off very grounded this family drama about this marriage falling apart and the conflict with the daughter and michelle you has a conflict with her dad because she married her husband and left and he disowned her and then you know this issue with her taxes where she has all these hobbies and dreams that she didn't fulfill and she keeps buying things with the business account and that's the issue with the taxes and then yeah it just spins out into wildness And it's such an interesting ride to see every possible universe that you could have lived in. And midway through the movie, she's seeing all these other universes and is basically like, every other universe is better than mine. And that universe that they go to is basically like Michelle Yeoh in real life. It's a universe Mm -hmm. where she became an actress who was famous for her martial arts skills. And then he, when he didn't marry her, became a CEO. He's very successful. He's debonair and cool. And they see each other at this event and they're like, the what could have been thing is so interesting because for them, it's playing out as like a, we both are so great and we could have had each other and we could have had this great life where we had each other and we're so great. And for her, it's playing out like the only reason that you guys have this life is because you weren't together. (laughs) (laughs) It's such an interesting, you know, there's layers of stuff going on in Cool Way. I also watched an interview. It was one of those, I forget who does it, the interview where the filmmakers break down the scenes that they've done. And it was with the Daniels and Michelle Yeoh. And she was talking about how, so Ki Kwan was kind of nervous coming back and he hired all these coaches to help him. And he hired an acting coach who was helping him break down the script. And they described it as regular Waymond is squirrel Waymond. The Alphaverse Waymond is an eagle. And the universe where he's successful is a fox. So those were the sort of That's animal very interesting. Animal cues. Yeah. I think that works. That's like Jake Gyllenhaal being a coyote in Nightcrawler. <laughs> yeah. You got to find your animal that you key into. But yeah, that was... So the, the kind of as everything's coming to a head, as Evelyn's falling to the nihilism, they're flipping back and forth between our universe and then that universe where they're both super successful And I thought that was, it was just such a beautiful scene where he's talking about how you think I'm weak and that my kindness is naivete, but you think of yourself as a fighter, but this is how I fight. I'm not weak. I know it's a cruel world, but this is the way that I choose to manage things. And then in particular, as he's leaving that interaction, I think as she's realizing like, oh, maybe my life isn't so bad. Everything comes together from the lighting and the score and his performance when he says, as he's going away, so even though you've broken my heart yet again, I wanted to say in another life, I would have really liked just doing laundry and taxes with you. And it's like, so sweet. (laughs) He's crying so much. Breaking. (laughs) It just, it's like, it's ever, I've been listening to that section of the soundtrack too, just on repeat. Like, yeah, it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. The acting is incredible. The writing is incredible. It looks so good. It's like just ridiculously creative. All of their various universes are so good. And it can sway tonally from so heartfelt and emotional to the silliest thing. You've the ever scene where seen. two guys have butt plugs in. Yes. <laughs> the or the, the one, it, it, it can sway from that. To that, within the same universe, I love the hot dog fingers. And at first you're like, this is the yeah. silliest thing ever. And then the hot dog fingers universe becomes this beautiful love story about people yeah. finding each other. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, how have you done this? Do you want to talk about Rakakuni? 
Oh, my God. Okay. My favorite joke of the whole thing, I think, is Rakakuni. Uh-huh. So there's a universe where it's a play on Ratatouille, obviously. Yes. It's a universe where she is a chef at a – What's that Hibachi. called? Hibachi restaurant. And she's very successful, but she's not quite as successful as this other chef at the Hibachi Chad. <laughs> restaurant. Chad, who's Harry Shum Jr., who – it turns out all along has been well, living- hold on, hold on. First, she like gets a glimpse of that universe and then she comes back to our universes and explaining. No, she's explained to Wayman how this is working. And she's like, it's like that movie, Rakakuni, where the guy has a <laughs> raccoon on his head and her family's like, what are you talking about? That's not a movie. You mean Ratatouille? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, so th- they've been all through the movie, they use this as a metaphor for what's going on whenever someone else comes into control of one of the bodies. They're like, oh, wait, was it raccoon, Wayman? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. So that's how they're explaining. It. But then they come back into this universe and it turns out all along that Harry Shubb Jr. has been controlled by a raccoon under his chef hat. And that's why he's so successful at being the hibachi chef. And then she, at a point when she's feeling very low, she unmasks him to everyone and it is revealed that he is being run by this raccoon and it tears his whole world apart. Well, the, the raccoon, raccoon gets taken away by people, animal control. Yeah, like animal control comes, they take the raccoon away, it's ruined his life, he's sobbing. And then later on, once she has come more into, you know, learning the lessons of the movie, she realizes that she needs to help him. And so she she jumps on his shoulders and is controlling him like she's the raccoon. And then at a certain point, he gets too tired running after the, the raccoon. So he's like, I can't do it. He gives up. And then she puts him on her shoulders and she runs after the raccoon. And it, the human spirit prevails. Yeah. It's and that, again, like talking about the management of tone and how they're able to do multiple things at once, as he's sobbing, there's a beautiful part where he's like, I'm useless without Rakakuni. And she's like, we're all useless alone. And you're like, that is a, that is uh, a true statement. That's a true it's so nice. Statement. Also, <laughs> apparently, like, I guess it's, I don't know if it's uncredited, but Randy Newman wrote a song that they're singing in that scene. They're singing a song called Now We're Cooking. And that is Randy Newman. <laughs> That's awesome. (laughs) If you're going to have a Pixar movie, you might as well get Randy Newman. I love Dracacoonie. It's great. He's so cute. Also, I did not know that Jenny Slate was going to be in this movie. And when she showed up, I was super excited because I'm always excited to see Jenny Slate. I love Jenny Slate in it. All of her parts are so great. And I also love she's like in our universe version of her. She is just this sort of like, I don't know vapid maybe kind of wealthy woman bringing her clothes to the laundromat and she's having a conversation with someone else the whole time which is always the most disrespectful thing Mm -hmm. to do during a customer service interaction and then they're having a a chinese new year party at the laundromat that they're inviting all the customers to and so she follows her out to the car michelle yo follows her out to the car to be like you should come to our party it's tonight blah 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 bring your friends it's totally free and she's like sure, sure, whatever, and you expect to never see her again. And then I love that she comes to the party. And I'm like, what is going on in this woman's life that she was like, you know what? I absolutely should go to the party at that laundromat that I was at today. She's fascinating. We don't know. But yeah, the battle scene when she's using her dog as a weapon is pretty great. Yeah. (laughs) It's also good. The style of everything is just on point. It's an impressive feat of movie making. The only other thing I'll say about this was I feel like it's been a really long time since there was a new property that gives you instantly recognizable iconography. And I feel like the third eye googly eye from this movie 
is that and could be that that's something that can persist in film iconography throughout the years it's really Mm -hmm. striking and you immediately you're like yes i could see this also a very easy halloween costume yeah helpful well everybody seemed to dress as jamie lee curtis's character last halloween which i thought was interesting well i mean it's it's quite a look she's put together yeah (laughs) i was watching another interview and i think the daniels were saying she was the one who's like i should have uh, a wrist guard and I should be wearing a watch over it and call for accessories for her idea but also like shout out to Jamie Lee Curtis for doing all the stunts that she did yeah they all did so many of their own stunts and they were super great yeah I mean Michelle Yeoh of course she did obviously She's, but and everybody else like wow right Kiki Kwan had been doing stunt coordination in second unit direction but you don't think of like Jamie Lee Curtis stunt performer <laughs> no but no. she was game and she did it Shout out. Oh, wait. I wrote down a joke that I liked where Waymond is describing to her, like, when he's first trying to explain what's going on, he's like, you must have felt that something is wrong. There's kind of a disturbance in the universe. Nothing feels right. And he says to her, your clothes never wear as well the next day. Your hair never falls in quite the same way. (laughs) So good. (laughs) Yeah. I love Waymond. Oh, I love the man. He's so good. I love too. So... They meet the evil version of Joy. Their universe, Wayman doesn't, but she later comes in and Michelle Yeoh ties her to a chair. And then the grandfather also becomes the alpha universe version of the grandfather. And he pulls a gun on all of them. Yeah. And Wayman's reaction to that is, I think it's time for a family discussion. (laughs) He's just the sweetest boy. And I love a movie that is about how the strongest character is the nicest character. That is what strength is. That's what ties us together as humans. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great. I loved it. It's a great movie. And yes, I know Kate Blanchett is tough competition, but I would really love for Michelle Yeoh to win Best Actress. As I talked to you before, right? She doesn't get the same opportunities that Kate Blanchett gets. Nope. And, um, you know, I don't think Kate Blanchett could do this role, but maybe Michelle Yeoh could play a weird conductor. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I don't see why she couldn't. All right. Wonderful, wonderful movie. Does that leave us at what should have won or what should win? And we'll see what does. Yes. Clearly, I think I would like to see everything everywhere all at once win. I agree with you. And I think it will. Although I very much enjoyed a number of these other movies. I think it will win. I thought about voting the way that you voted because I think we both agree that this is what should win. But I really liked a lot of the other movies. So, you know, in a vacuum, I wouldn't be mad if those movies were Best Picture winners. In another year. Yeah. I really liked them. It's a good set. In a green book year? Give it to anybody. Dear God. (laughs) Okay. So we don't know if the Oscars got it wrong, but we will in your time in a few minutes when we cut in from the future. (laughs) We'll see. We'll let you know. Okay. We're here from the future now. Breaking in. Wow. It's hard to keep track of all these time changes. Yes. We're here to find out if the Oscars got it wrong. And surprise, surprise, they didn't. No, great job, Oscars. Who saw this coming? What a lovely night you all had. Best picture for everything everywhere. Seven total awards for them. They crushed it. And four awards for All Quiet on the Western Front, which I also loved. That was a bit of a surprise. They went on a bit of a tear there for a, a few minutes, and it was... Pretty surprising, but cool. I'm not opposed to it. I think the only unfortunate thing about this Academy Awards is Banshees didn't win anything, but yes, they had some tough matchups. They did. Sometimes, Sometimes it be like that. 
you get a bad draw. And as I said to you the other day, not every great movie wins Academy Awards. There just aren't that many to go around. Yeah. So sorry to Banshees. Yay for everything everywhere. Yay for all quiet on the Western front. Yeah. Surprise. All right. Back to the past. (laughs) And here we are back from the future. But when we do these like eight, nine, 10 movie years, we do like to say if these five winners had been the five nominees in a five nominee year, are these the right nominees? I think four of them are right. I agree with that. I was going to say, I don't know if Elvis would make it out of my first round. I think Women Talking and All Quiet on the Western Front got a rough matchup. That was Shades of Lincoln and Django Unchained for me. So I think, yeah, those should be the five. But I think it's a pretty strong year. I mean, it's not always the case that there are five movies that I think should be nominated for Best Picture. Too true. (laughs) Too true. So, good times. Hopefully the movies are coming back. We're re-entering a new... It's like going to be the 70s or the 90s again. Strong it's nominations. Possible. It could happen. People making 20, 30 million dollar films, then they don't have to turn as much of a profit. Yep. Fingers crossed. And they can do it. Again, I, All Quiet on the Western Front costs 20 million dollars to make. It looks fantastic. It's it looks stunning. Everything everywhere looks stunning. I mean, most of the good movies were not expensive movies. Yeah. Learn your lesson, Hollywood. Now, we have to take a trip. <laughs> down our little lane to Jake Gyllenhaal corner. Should he have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Well, you ask yourself, he's not in any of these movies, but he must have been in something. I don't remember what it is. What could he have been in? Why, it's only (laughs) Michael Bay's Ambulance. (laughs) It's him and Yahya Abdul-Mateen in a totally fucking crazy Michael Bay movie where they have robbed a place and then they ride around in an ambulance trying to not get caught for the rest of the movie. Throughout LA, which is notable in the advertisement. <laughs> it's a wild time. I don't, have you seen this movie? I have not. I watched it on a plane, which I highly advise. If you're ever okay. on a plane and you see ambulance as one of the options, watch it. Because Jay Gyllenhaal is like, I've seen him give some big performances. This is up there with his big performances. Mm. It's really fun. He's having a great time doing this role, which is all you can really want. I love when actors are having a good time in their movies. So should he be nominated for an Oscar? I I, I don't think he should probably be nominated for an Oscar. (laughs) Cool. Fun, though. Sure. Okay. So which of these movies do you see yourself coming back to? I so I I was gonna say I'd watch any of the top four again. I don't know that I'm gonna watch All Quiet on the Western Front again. It's it's like it would take specific circumstances. Like that's a movie I could see myself showing a person, being like, "Oh my god, you haven't seen All Quiet on the Western Front? We gotta watch it." Because then you get the added element of observing their experience watching it, Mm -hmm. which I always love. But yeah, probably at least not for quite some time. Am I gonna sit down and feel like watching All Quiet on the Western Front again? I will say in order to see The Fablemans, because I decided not to go to the theater, I had to buy it digitally, so I own it. You could watch it again at any time. <laughs> it's pretty easy to watch. But I'd 100% watch The Banshees of Inishirin and Everything Everywhere All at Once mm-hmm. again. I'll probably watch Everything Everywhere All at Once multiple times. Banshees and Everything and Fablemans. I saw all of yeah. those twice. <laughs> so there we go. There we go. Okay. What have we learned? We don't know yet. We don't have yeah. winners. Well, what we'll see is... 
when the winner happens, if we've learned enough to predict the winner. Yeah. I mean, even if we're right, I don't know that that means we've learned enough or we just sure. like correctly flipped well, the we'll coin. Make, we'll, <laughs> given how long it's going to take us to do this podcast, we'll have four more years of real-time data to tell us if we've learned anything. Exactly. But yeah, we'll see if we learned anything. We got to check in on our patterns. Angry white guys. I think Kate Blanchett and Tar is our first female angry She's an white angry guy. White guy. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So, She's definitely congratulations. the closest. But there are actually a kind of a lot of sweet guys in these yeah. movies, which is nice. That a return of the sweet guy is exactly what we need. Guy. Oh, I'll say Jake Sully and what's his face at Avatar are pretty toxically masculine. <laughs> That's true. Okay, and then biopics we have. Elvis. Just, just one. But The Fablemans is kind of like an autobiopic. Yeah. It doesn't, I mean, we always get back to like, does it do the soup to nuts? And it's really just his formative Childhood. years. He doesn't try to bring us through all of his things. No, that would be a long movie. It really would be. <laughs> if we're growing at the pacing of the film. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. And then original ideas will run through. We have one, two, three, four, five, six original ideas. That's pretty good. That's got to be one of our best ratios ever. Yeah. Banshee's Triangle of Sadness Elvis, which we're counting because it's not based on anything other than a real person. Mm. Everything Everywhere, The Fablemans, and Tar are all original ideas. Nice job, guys. I mean, then Top Gun is a sequel, which apparently makes it not original. <laughs> and then we have Avatar, same story. All Quiet on the Western Front and Women Talking are indeed both novels. Yes. Oh, one thing that we don't have on our list, but we should definitely talk about is mm -hmm. our Steven Spielberg Oscar count. Correct. Well... We don't think he should win Best Picture, but there's a question about who should win Best Director. And Screenplay. Well, that's the thing. I'd love for him to win <laughs> Screenplay. He's never been nominated for that before. To me, I feel like Everything Everywhere is such a directorial achievement. It's tough for me to not want the Daniels to win. Mm. There's a lot of good directing this year. Ed Berger directing All Quiet. That's fucking great. It is incredibly yeah. well directed and for very little money. <laughs> Impressive shit. And of course, Steven's always great because Steven's Steven and the performances are incredible and it's, you know, a beautiful movie. But I, I gotta go Daniels. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think Daniels. Daniels is the play. But yeah, shouts out to Ed for All Quiet on the Western Front. I love him. Ed Berger, you you're wonderful. Okay, so we, we're not adding anything to Steven's tally? Or are we adding oh, no, screen, screenplay? screenplay. I just don't remember what the other screenplays are that are nominated. Okay. It's a tough category. Banshees, everything, Fableman's, Tar, Triangle of Sadness. Ditch I mean, Tar, Ditch Triangle tar, of Sadness. Fuck them. Yeah. But Banshees, everything, and Fableman's are great scripts. What's going to happen? <laughs> I mean, the thing is like to juggle everything ever all at once and to still have it work and also wreck you. Mm -hmm. It's tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see it's what happens. A, it's a good year. Good it stuff. Is. It's a strong year for movies, which is exciting. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know if Steven wins anymore this year. Okay. Sorry, Steven. Sorry, Steven. Don't worry. Your time is coming, Steven. <laughs> I promise you by the end of our podcast, you will have many more Oscars, many Oscars than you did before. So does that wrap us up? Yes. Okay. Thank God. What are we talking about next time? And when are we talking about it? So as we have mentioned I don't know in this episode, but in this series of episodes, we are going to take a short release break. 
but we will be back in May of 2023. So in about a month. And at that time, we will be talking about the 39th Academy Awards or the films of 1966. The nominees that year were A Man for All Seasons, Alfie, The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, The Sand Pebbles, and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Excellent. Have you seen any of these movies? I have seen Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You? I believe I've seen none, though I have read Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. All right. Well, as always, get excited for King Henry VIII. I'm never excited for King Henry VIII. Why does this keep happening to me? (laughs) It's crazy. In the meantime, comments, questions, concerns, reach out to us with your thoughts about any of these movies. You can reach us at OscarsWrongPod at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Letterboxd at OscarsWrongPod, and our website is OscarsWrongPod.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.